Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, we reach way back into the Green Rush vault for a show where our hosts, Lewis and Ann, spoke with Rick Doblin, founder and executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Founded in 1986, MAPS is a 501c3 nonprofit research and educational organization that develops medical, legal, and cultural contexts for people to benefit from the careful use of psychedelics and marijuana. MAPS envisions a world where psychedelics and marijuana are safely and legally available for beneficial uses and where research is governed by rigorous scientific evaluation of their risks and benefits. In this episode, Lewis and Ann spoke with Rick about the FDA-regulated MDMA trials run by MAPS, as well as some of the ways Rick was keeping himself occupied and together just as the coronavirus pandemic was setting in. So don't say Sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with Rick Doblin from MAPS. Rick, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with us. We are recording this on March 24th, 2020. Um, and I honestly don't think there is a more ideal person to speak with than you right now. Um, first off, how are you dealing with the COVID pandemic? Are you okay? Oh, am I okay? I'm like, um, I'm so okay. I feel bad that, um, you know, I feel bad for other people, but I've got my two daughters are here. My wife is here. Our uh, one daughter is 21. College is now all virtual. So she's come home from college. Our other daughter who's 23 works for Ted in New York. So she's fled New York city. Thank so God. I've got I've got every, my two daughters, my wife, a hot tub. I've got a <laughs> big supply of chocolate chips and marijuana, and I, I just hang out in front of my computer and on the phone. And you know, all my trips are canceled, so I've got you know I don't have to prepare for talks or anything, and so life's easy. And I'm just working a lot, and okay. um, you know, sad I, for the world, but um, doing okay. I, I got to make a bad pun. So all of your trips are canceled? <laughs> well, that's a good point. Not all of them. In fact, have you seen there's this meme that's put out that was sent to me um, about Bill? Uh, yes. Particular bit about Bill, Bill wants to go on a trip, but he can't travel, but he's going to stay home and take mushrooms. <laughs> Be like Bill. Be responsible. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. So, um, no, mostly what I do is um, – I edit my work while I'm high on marijuana at the end of the day. <laughs> and I find it gives me um, a lot of focus and attention. And then I get a feel for what the words, uh, what the impressions that the words are making and I can fine tune the words. And so, um, yeah. 
Rick, can you tell us a little bit, um, you know, we are a, a cannabis focused podcast, but we've dabbled in the, the psychedelic space, um, you know, here and there. Um, MAPS is focused on finding different ways to use psychedelics to, to treat trauma. Can you tell us a little bit how that works and, and why these drugs are, are so effective at helping people with these, you know, deep seated psychological pain and P- things like PTSD and, and depression? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll also say that, um, and maybe we'll get this at, at the end, but we have just, you know, finished a $2.1 million study of cannabis for PTSD as well in 76 Oh, definitely veterans. want to talk about but, that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to it. I promise you. Okay, okay, okay. All right, so we'll focus on psychedelics. And, and by the way, the way I in, um, define the word psychedelic is the in the initial meaning of it, which is mind manifesting. Um, meaning bringing things to the surface. And so I, I figure marijuana fits within. So we consider marijuana a psychedelic too. And, and in fact, MDMA is more um, gentle than the classic psychedelics. And, and marijuana is more like LSD or psilocybin than it is like MDMA. Really? But okay. yeah, Be- because with, with marijuana, you get a flow of thoughts. You have a certain kind of... Um, focused attention, um, MDMA, and, and we'll get back now, this is about your question about how these psychedelics can be helpful for trauma, that what PTSD does is it changes people's brains. So once you have had a trauma, most people are resilient and they are able to recover, but often people that have had a series of traumas, um, get this kind of it's almost like an obsessive compulsive disorder but it's that the trauma never is fully processed it's not put into long-term memory and it starts to feel like it's always about to happen again Hmm. and it's always there and it colors everything that people see and it comes in their nightmares and it comes they see triggers all the time so what happens with ptsd is that when you get this kind of cycle, this negatively reinforced cycle, the portion of your brain that responds to fearful emotions is called the amygdala. And there's more activity in the amygdala in people with PTSD than in normal people. Because people with PTSD are not so much thinking logically or rationally anymore, things that uh, trigger them, um, you know, if they were to spend a fraction of a second or a little bit of time trying to say that that noise it's not actually a bomb you know it's a car backfiring or something you know that people are not thinking as rationally and so what we see is that ptsd reduces activity in the prefrontal cortex where we think logically and rationally and ptsd also reduces activity um, in the hippocampus where we process memories into long-term memory and, and PTSD is a disease or a disorder, you could say, of a lack of trust in humanity or people or, you know, that, that people are not in a safe world, that the world is always um, going to come and get them. So PTSD changes the brain. MDMA is, I think, the ideal drug for PTSD. I think the classic psychedelics, and I'll go into them in a second, more like LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, you know, ayahuasca, ibogaine, um, the ones that are more or less considered to do ego dissolution, they can be helpful for PTSD, but they don't have the fear reduction properties of MDMA. So what MDMA does is that it reduces activity in the amygdala. 
so that we don't react in such a fearful way to difficult memories and emotions. I think that's the one of the big parts of why MDMA can be helpful in therapy, because when you think about the trauma, when you have PTSD, it's overwhelming. And people often, you know, go to drug abuse to a, a run away from that, or they are emotionally numb, or they're hypervigilant in the opposite direction. But MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala. It also increases activity in the prefrontal cortex. So people are thinking more logically. So you see somebody wearing a, a something that's similar to somebody that attacked you, and you can separate it out. That's not the attacker. Now, MDMA also increases activity and the connectivity between the amygdala and the hippocampus. So what that means is it permits these memories that are sort of stuck in short-term memory that are not fully processed to be processed and moved into long-term memory storage so that this thing happened to me, but it's not always about to be happening again. And MDMA stimulates um, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine so that you have this complex cascade of uh, enhanced uh, neurotransmitters in your brain. But it also has a hormonal effect. And so MDMA releases oxytocin which is the hormone of nursing mothers, of love and um, connection. So that with this oxytocin release, people feel connected to others. It's pro-social and it helps people get over the fear of the world being an unsafe place. So you combine all of these activities and it's still not therapeutic in and of itself. It's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. That's the treatment that we're developing. And I, and I like to really emphasize that in that it's the therapy that's working and the MDMA helps the therapy be more effective. Does it need to be a deep-seated trauma or can it be recent? Uh, it can be recent. Um, the reason in the research that we work with chronic treatment-resistant PTSD is that we want to demonstrate that it works in the hardest cases. Because there is such stigma for psychedelics, although that's lessening, um, but it's also easier to work with FDA and other um, parts of our society if you say, look, we're going to take the hardest cases. So many people, as I said before, who are traumatized will recover, will be able to, you could say, even metabolize the trauma and, you know, sort of their resilience and, and they bounce back. But so that's why we don't want to work with recent trauma because there's a large amount of um, self-healing going on there. Chronic means six months or more. And mm -hmm. so often when, when people get into um, chronic PTSD, um, usually they don't get better unless there's some kind of an intervention, you know, therapy or drugs or, or something. But so, so we work with chronic and we also work with treatment resistant PTSD. But in the future, I think what will happen is that people will be using MDMA when they have had recent traumas to process them so that it doesn't develop into PTSD. So it leaves both a treatment for the hardest cases and also preventative medicine for people who've been traumatized um, recently. Rick, I think um, w when you talked about um, MDMA being, it's it's almost like a... I guess catalyst is the wrong word, but it goes it goes hand in hand with um, with 
with treatment. Um, so it's not like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm popping a Molly <laughs> on a Saturday night and, you know, and going to treat my PTSD or, or, you know, psychological pain that way. Um, can you describe, you know, how it's used in a, in a therapeutic setting and, and what the experience is like? Yeah. So our treatment is based on um, this concept that there has to be preparation, there has to be integration, and then there is a therapeutic experience. And so we work with a male-female co-therapy team. So that's the first big thing, is that we work <coughs> with a two-person team. Um, one of them has to be licensed as a therapist. The other uh, can be a student. But still, we try to do a male-female team. We've had two female teams. That works great as well. But there's something to be said for a male-female team. Then the, the core of the treatment manual, the, the, we've standardized the treatment. So if people want to learn about it, they could go to the MAPS, M-A-P-S, MAPS.org website to research the MDMA page. And down at the bottom is the treatment manual. So the, the therapeutic approach is based on this idea that there's, uh, you could even say based on a hypothesis, that there's a certain wisdom to the psyche, a certain self-healing mechanism. And we all believe that and know that to be true for our bodies, that we get wounded and the body puts itself back together, you know, to some extent, um, with cuts and things, you know, completely. And we don't know how that works. It's below our level of consciousness. So we believe that there's some kind of self-healing mechanism in the psyche and that we are trying to be like midwives. We are trying to help people heal themselves and to help them learn how to process trauma. So we support whatever people are experiencing going through. We're not guides in the sense that we don't do guided imagery. We don't know what people need to do. We have an eight-hour therapy session. So we have our what we're studying in phase three right now is a, basically a three-and-a-half-month treatment. You get MDMA on three occasions, one month apart, in these eight-hour sessions, and then there's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions um, roughly once a week, three before the first MDMA session for preparation and three after each MDMA session for integration. And then we look two months after the last experimental session, and it'll either be people that got therapy without any MDMA or therapy with MDMA, and then we compare the groups at the two-month follow-up. We also look at one year. So in this eight-hour session, um, what happens is that people will take an initial dose. Um, the first session, we use 80 milligrams, and then around two hours later, we give half the initial amount. Uh, we call it a supplemental dose, and that extends the plateau. It doesn't make it any stronger, but it, it extends the plateau where people are in this optimal arousal zone, meaning that there, a lot of times people with PTSD are either hypervigilant, they react and they can't process anything, or they're emotionally numb, and then they still can't do any good work either. But the MDMA brings them into this sort of optimal arousal zone, and we don't follow a script. This is where this um, idea of the inner healer, the inner healing intelligence comes in, is that we just have basically um, a conversation almost, you could say, um, with the person um, following what they're talking about. But of the eight hours, roughly four hours or roughly half in no particular order, people's eyes are closed and they're listening to music. 
and they're having a flow of imagery and imagination. Um, it's, it's incredibly poetic and metaphorical. You know, people have just, um, they're, they're telling themselves a story of uh, their life and, and what they're, and they're seeing things. So just as an example, one of the veterans in our study had the image of the warrior self after he came back from Iraq was something that he didn't trust. And he had locked it up in a cage and this cage was inside his, his chest. And he had this warrior self locked up in this cage and the warrior was reaching out of the cage to stab him in the side. And, and then during the session, he realized that um, keeping this part of himself locked up was only made it worse. And he unlocked the cage and he made friends with his warrior self. And after that, he never had rage incidents, which he had had before. So people are in this eight hour session are um, healing themselves through a lot of the inner work. The MDMA takes about an hour to come on. Um, and then there's this flow for three, four hours. Also with this supplemental dose, the second and third sessions are often 120 milligrams followed by 60 and people at some point, they always end up talking about their traumas. Sometimes they start with some pleasant memories in a way. It's like they're giving themselves strength and then they go into more difficult stuff or sometimes people go into the more difficult stuff or sometimes you think that, and they think that the trauma is from this particular thing that happened, but then they go back to something that happened to them when they were a child that has kind of formed the basis of their personality. So um, it's really this process of helping people who are now in this state of mind and state of emotion where there, there's a sense of self-acceptance, a sense of self-love even, a sense of connection to the people that they're with, and in their memories of difficult things, they can think more clearly about it. It's like the emotions are quieted so that the mind is more rational. But the emotions often are um, expressed in a way so that several of the, a lot of the people actually in our studies have said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy. Because <laughs> it's, it's not like you just take a drug and everything's fine. So there are times where people are shaking or crying or, or just terrified, but they're letting it out. So you guys are you're, – you're, you, you mentioned you're in, in the FDA process. You know, uh, a couple questions about this. Where are we in the process? Um, and, you know, MDMA is a Schedule One drug. So how do you actually get it to administer it? Well, uh, the answer to that question is that I uh, abandoned my whole uh, life plan to get a clinical psych PhD. This is in the 80s in order to do psychedelic psychotherapy outcome research uh, because I couldn't get permission to do it. In the 80s, everything was shut down. Nobody could get permission. So I ended up um, going to the Kennedy School of Government and getting my master's and PhD from there precisely to answer the question you just asked, which is how do you get it and how do you do research? So. The answer is that um, in our cultural context with these, um, you know, it's, we're still in the midst of prohibition and drug war, although we're coming out of that to some extent, that you have to negotiate with FDA to get approval for a protocol. Once you have approval for a protocol, you also need to be negotiating with the Institutional Review Board or the ethics committees, and you also have to 
get approval from the DEA and everybody needs to be, uh, or the therapists, uh, doctors need to be licensed by the state. So it takes many, many months to get permission. And, and what I'll say is now we're in a, a midst of a psychedelic renaissance. There's more psychedelic research all over the world than in any time in the last 50 years. Um, but it's really because of a small group of people at the FDA that took over the regulation of psychedelics in 1990. So the backlash against the psychedelics started in the 60s. And it, psychedelic research was basically wiped out all over the world for several decades through the 70s and 80s. And it was only starting to be in the 90s that this group of people at the FDA called the Pilot Drug Evaluation Staff started um, putting science above the drug war and started permitting research with psychedelics to take place. So it's, it's because of the FDA. And so the, the way in which we have to um, get permission is there's two different basic ways. One is you're doing scientific academic research where you're just trying to learn things. And psychedelics are a tool to learn things about how does the mind work or how does emotions work, things like that. The other main, uh, the, the other approach is called drug development. And what that means is that you're working to develop a drug into a prescription medicine. And so we're, to make a drug into a medicine from the FDA, you have to prove safety and efficacy. And there has to be a balance. Nothing is perfectly safe or uh, you know, completely dangerous under all circumstances. Um, you know, even radiation, we've harnessed for x-rays and um, thalidomide, which was considered to be the, you know, today in the newspaper, the New York Times science section, the cover article is about thalidomide and the, causing birth defects when it was given in, to pregnant women um, for morning sickness, but it caused terrible birth defects. But, uh, but thalidomide is now a medicine for um, certain kinds of cancer and leprosy. So in any case, you have to prove safety and efficacy in a balanced kind of risk-benefit way, but you don't have to prove mechanism of action. You don't have to know how it works. So MAPS, as a nonprofit psychedelic and cannabis pharmaceutical company, has focused on safety and efficacy, um, and we're leaving how it works to other people to figure out. But it is possible to get permission for research with psychedelics. Um, let me now just distinguish this from cannabis research. Um, right now, to do drug development research, we're in phase three, which is the final stage of research to prove safety and efficacy. And we are um, we're going to complete in the next uh, year and a half all of the people that we need to treat for phase three, assuming that this uh, coronavirus uh, process ends at some point and we can actually start treating patients. But from the point in time that we can start cre treating patients again, um, it'll be about a year and a half or so to enroll everybody in phase three. Um, then we analyze the data and it'll take another six months or so to negotiate with FDA. So we think in 2022, will have uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD approved by the FDA, by the Israeli Ministry of Health, and by Health Canada. You guys have, have really focused on um, 
on MDMA, you know, that that's like the molecule you've, you've chosen to work with. Why, um, why that specifically and why not, you know, LSD or DMT or, um, uh, you know, any, any of the others? Well, yeah, that, that's also a super important question. So um, I did a strategic analysis of um, when I wanted to make a drug, psychedelic psychotherapy. So the first, of course, was that in our society, um, with the drug war, the only open door was at the FDA. And that was closed for multiple decades. But eventually, we were able to get that door open. So then the question is, which psychedelic to use? And what clinical condition should it be used for? So the reason why we landed on MDMA is that it's the most gentle of all the psychedelics. It's the easiest to integrate. Um, and it doesn't dissolve the ego in the way that these other classic psychedelics do. And one of our beliefs is that the therapists who work with patients will be more effective if they've done the drug themselves. Hmm. So, for example, you know, you wouldn't go to a, a yoga teacher who never did yoga. You wouldn't <laughs> go to a meditation teacher who didn't meditate. So, and, you know, and, and you, you don't need to go to a psychiatrist who's um, going to give somebody uh, electroconvulsive therapy for depression. You know, we don't think that that psychiatrist needs to get ECT himself. But that's because the treatment is the ECT. With MDMA or, or psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, the treatment is the psychotherapy with the therapist in the room all the time. And so it's the relationship between the person and the therapist that's part of the healing process. So what we are um, basically saying is that for their training of psychiatrists and therapists to do this sort of work, they're a lot more willing to try MDMA in general than they are MDMA, uh, excuse me, than they are LSD or psilocybin. Those are challenging, scarier drugs, and they require more surrender of control. They're, they're definitely more challenging. So, uh, but it's mainly because MDMA is the gentlest of the drug. It, it, it will be the, um, the least um, negative reactions. And, and I think it's got, um, you know, it, 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 it just will work really, I think, the first. And that, that's what we see, that we're ahead of, of the research with the other classic psychedelics. So then comes the question, what do we use MDMA for? So first off, we need a condition that the currently available medications don't work for that all that well, or even the psychotherapies leave a lot of people's treatment resistant. We also need a patient population that is sympathetic to the American public. And we need a disease that's expensive, that's disabling, that's problematic, and that there's a, a lot of people who need help. So MDMA is ideal for PTSD. And PTSD is an ideal uh, patient population because, um, well, in our culture, you know, we have kind of a national crisis with veterans committing suicide. Now they think it's 17 a day, 16,000 a year, 6,000 a year or something like that. Veterans committing suicide that um, veterans are held in high esteem. There's a sense of moral obligation to help them uh, for what they've been through. And both Democrats and Republicans, there's bipartisan support for helping veterans. There's also a lot of 
sympathy for women who've been sexually abused, for um, you know childhood sexual abuse, adult rape and assault. That um, and so the, those are the two main categories of people that have PTSD. Um, there's PTSD from operations, from um, from accidents, from natural disasters, all sorts of things. But in general, it's you know war. But there's way more people that have it from uh, sexual abuse or violent attacks, domestic violence, things like that. So we have a sympathetic patient population, and it just so happens that MDMA changes people's brains in almost the exact opposite way that PTSD changes their brains. In fact, mm -hmm. one of the vets in the study said that uh, PTSD changed my brain and MDMA changed it back. So that, that's how we arrived. MDMA and PTSD. And that was the combination. And in 1984, when MDMA was still legal and I was still trying to learn to become a therapist, um, I worked with um, a girlfriend of a friend of mine. I didn't know her, but they, they had actually, this is a good story in the sense that they had done MDMA together. Um, and during this MDMA experience, the, the woman had um, memories of past sexual uh, assault. She'd been raped and almost killed. And the, the feelings came to the surface. So the MDMA brought the feelings to the surface. She wasn't able to um, really process it. She'd previously been suicidal, been in, in institutions because of the pain, the emotional pain of this. And so she actually took MDMA with this friend of mine and ended up uh, checking herself into the hospital, the mental hospital, to avoid hurting herself. And they gave her the same uh, drugs that she'd gotten before. Um, and she was more hopeless. And she got out and she's like, there's nothing for me to live for. And so my friend appealed to me to would I work with her. And um, I, I didn't feel qualified, but I said to her, I don't see that you've got other options. And if you just promise not to kill yourself when you work with me, um, I'll work with you. And, and it turned out that um, it was the, the, the psychedelic assisted therapy with MDMA um, helped her a lot. How long, how long did the benefits how long do the benefits of these treatments last? I mean, is it is it like you can have one, two, or three sessions and you are permanently changed, or do you have to keep revisiting it every couple of years? Um, well, there's the whole range of outcomes. So, so some th this particular uh, person that I'm talking about that was 1984, so that's 36 years ago, um, and she's actually now one of our lead therapists. She she later went to school to become a therapist and um, now helps others and trains other therapists. So some people have had only one experience with severe PTSD. They have only one MDMA experience and they're fine for uh, nine years, one guy. So, but life is continually challenging. I mean, look at all the people that are stressed now because of coronavirus. So let's talk about that, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I would say though that, that there's something fundamentally um, going on that, that changes people's brains when they go through psychedelic psychotherapy. So you are actually rewiring your brain, literally. There's a paper in Nature uh, by researchers at Johns Hopkins that gave MDMA to mice, and they showed that um, MDMA releases oxytocin, as I said, but this oxytocin release promotes new neural connections in prosocial areas of the brain. So you are actually rewiring your brain. And because of that, people can have um, long-term durable outcomes. However, if, if life keeps stressing you, sometimes uh, you, know, you might get uh, 
PTSD again. So you can't say that it makes you immune. It's not like getting the coronavirus and then you survive and now you've got antibodies that uh, prevent you from getting, um, you know, sick from a coronavirus. But there's there's something similar in the sense that once you are treated with MDMA and you learn that you can process your trauma, you are more able to process future traumas because you, you've got this capacity to uh, to experience these difficult emotions. You know that there's a way in which that it's healthy to do so and that it can uh, be done without destroying you. Uh, to give you an example, another example, one person uh, was a veteran in our study and he went through the treatment and he was doing great afterwards. Um, this is now about um, five years after his treatment, six years after his treatment. And um, he was um, at a meeting and he went outside and he saw down the road this uh, person giving somebody else uh, sort of um, um, CPR. So he went over and it was somebody that had actually been shot in a drive-by shooting from somebody on a bicycle. He had bullet wounds in his chest. And this veteran started giving him um, mouth to mouth and the guy died in his arms. Oh, my God. So this is like a war-related almost kind of thing. And he, he luckily, he called me, and I was on the phone with our, ther- our chief psychiatrist, Michael Minhofer, and we talked about it. And he, he had a little hard time sleeping that night, this guy. But he was able to process that whole thing, and he did not um, relapse into PTSD. He, was, he developed a certain kind of resilience. So I, I would say that we, we do believe that there are long-term durable outcomes. We've done a three-and-a-half-year follow-up that showed that on average the results are even better at three and a half years slightly than um, at the one year mark. But what we're going to do now is a long, long term follow up to everybody that was in phase two, which started around 2004. So we're going to have people who have been treated 16 years ago to about um, five years ago. So we will, we, we definitely need to answer that question, but we can say that there are numerous cases of people that went through our treatment, um, got over their PTSD, and have not been um, succumbed again to PTSD. Um, so right now, the... oh, go ahead, Liz. But, 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 Sorry. But I should answer, also say that some people have relapsed. I, I don't want to yeah. give the wrong impression. So it, it's not 100%. Relapsed, no, no. And the people that relapse are tending to be the ones that don't have a safe place to go back to. You know, one woman was living in her car, so we, we she was able to get over her PTSD, but then she goes in back and she lives in a dangerous situation. So those are the ones that tend to relapse, or the ones that are um, don't have a safe place to land, you could say. I, I, right now, the entire world is being traumatized by the coronavirus. I mean, I think we're all going to suffer from post-corona stress disorder um, when this plays out. Um, and the work that's being done by MAPS and, and others is focusing on using, you know, these types of molecules, whether they be MDMA or others. Um, but it's focused on using it on adults. But every child in the world who is, has a TV or the Internet sees what's going on, you know, millions and millions of people are, are literally locked in their houses and are dealing with with this horrible disease, you know, this virus. What can we do both uh, as individual parents 
to help our kids deal with this trauma as they're going through it? And then as a society, how do we deal with this mass trauma that we're all going to experience or all experiencing? Yeah. Well, the, the first thing about children, let me address that first. So that um, the FDA is requiring us, if we succeed in adults, and by that they mean people that are 18 or over. So in our phase three studies, 18 is the youngest that we can enroll somebody, um, and there's no upper age limit. So it's not about age, it's about health, mostly cardiac health, because MDMA increases blood pressure a bit. Um, but the FDA is requiring us, if we succeed in adults, we have to then uh, try to work with traumatized adolescents from 12 to 17. And if that works with 12 to 17-year-olds, then we have to work with 7 to 11-year-olds. Oh, my God. And Yeah, and there's a reason why I think it'll work in um, 7 to 11-year-olds who are traumatized. And there's an increasingly number of refugees, um, you know, from various uh, Syrian refugees um, all, all over from South and Central America. It's just, it's, there's a massive number of traumatized children. So um, researchers at Johns Hopkins, the same ones that I uh, said did the studies in mice and showed that it released oxytocin and created new neural connections, did studies in octopuses. And octopuses are um, asocial, unless it's mating season, which isn't very often. Um, so they, they avoid other octopuses. And what they were able to find is that when you um, put MDMA in the water, you soak the octopus in the water for 10 minutes, it absorbs MDMA, all of a sudden now it wants to hang out with other octopuses. And <laughs> octopuses uh, and humans, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. They, they diverge, we diverge from octopuses around 550 million years ago. But octopuses still do process serotonin. So the pro-social trusting aspects of MDMA are pre-verbal. They go so deep in our evolutionary history that they, they work in octopuses. So that's why I think they work in children, even if they can't really express what's going on with them. So what do we do? Um, I think in the future, um, you know, what, what we need to do is work with the hardest cases. But what we want to do is get the preventative medicine as well. And that's where we get into this whole question about drug policy reform, because, you know, we can medicalize MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD or depression or anxiety or drug abuse or some clinical condition. But unless you qualify for a psychiatric diagnosis, you know, the FDA won't approve a drug for that condition. So a lot of people are going to be lower level traumatized. And how do we help them? And so I think that there will in the future, and, and by when I say this in the future, what I, what I think is going to happen is that 2022 will get MDMA approved as a medicine. Um, and then shortly thereafter, 2022, 2023, something like that, 24, um, we'll have psilocybin becoming a medicine too. And then we will have roughly a decade of psychedelic clinics that are going to be set up. There's already some over 100 now being set up for ketamine um, for depression. And those are mostly, I think, um, limited in what they're doing because they see ketamine as the treatment in and of itself, and they don't give it with psychotherapy. But I think it's, it's going to be more effective. Well, I mean, there's the, 
you know, Field Trip, who's a client of ours, is doing ketamine clinics, but they are definitely focused on psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Maybe not the the amount of time that that you'd have to do in a you know a MAPS trial, but they they are not just saying, hey, you know, take a ketamine infusion or a nasal you know infusion and and then go off and you're cured. I mean, they you have had that impact. I know on on them specifically, and I think on most of the, or many of the clinic companies out there. That's great to hear. Yeah, because the way that ketamine has been approved, um, it's approved by uh, Johnson & Johnson, by Jensen, um, and it's a profit-maximizing company, and so they don't care about maximum. well, they're not focused on maximizing patient outcomes, they're focused on maximizing profits. And so S-ketamine, the isomer ketamine, is approved for... Um, the use in, in depression, but it's approved without any psychotherapy. And, and it, the results tend to fade. You need a bunch of uh, infusions. It's very expensive. But I'm, I'm really glad to hear what you say about field trip because when you combine it with ketamine, ketamine, when you combine it with therapy, you will get better results and you need less ketamine. You need more therapy, but you need less ketamine. So, um, so anyway, these psychedelic clinics that are going to be set up, field trip, you know, others with ketamine, will eventually expand to provide MDMA, psilocybin, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, other things as they come through the FDA process. And I think once we have a decade of those, where more and more people are um, being able to know a uh, person that benefited from psychedelic psychotherapy, I think by 2035, we'll move towards a post-prohibition world where all of these drugs will be... um, what we call licensed legalization, where it'll be uh, more regulated than alcohol, but it'll be a way where you have a license to buy the drug. If you misbehave, you punish for your misbehavior, but you lose your license to buy the drug too. So that's when we'll be able to really have people educated about here, use this for preventative medicine. Um, I think for a while now, until then, all these people that are traumatized by the coronavirus, um, they'll have to um, either go to regular therapy or, or you know, there's, there's a number of things that they can do, but we will have a hard time um, providing them with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy unless their trauma rises to the level of a diagnosis of PTSD. Rick, you had mentioned companies like um, J&J and, and I, I guess Jensen within J&J, um, you, you know, working towards, you know, maximizing profit. MAPS is focused, you know, is, is a not-for-profit company, rather, a B corporation. Can you talk about how you're funded and, and how you are going to make money if and when you can get uh, FDA approval? Yeah. So we're actually, we, our corporate structure, uh, so 1986 is when I started MAPS, 34 years ago. And in December of 2014 is when we started the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. So that is the for-profit arm. And that's the group that's doing our clinical research and is also going to sell MDMA by prescription. But the for-profit arm is a benefit corporation where still you maximize benefit, not profit. And it's 100% owned by the nonprofit. So we're different than uh, Compass Pathways, which is the company that's um, the for-profit company that's trying to make psilocybin into a medicine for treatment-resistant depression. There's the nonprofit USONA that's trying to make um, psilocybin into a medicine for major depressive disorder. And 
so what we're planning to do is once MDMA becomes a medicine, there's a program that was passed by Ronald Reagan, a law in 1984, to provide incentives for developing drugs that are off patent. So MDMA was invented in 1912 by Merck, so it's off patent. Then you can have use patents. Um, and when I started MAPS in 86, another group, Howard Lotsoff and others, started a company called NDA International to make Ibogaine into a medicine for uh, opiate addiction. In 1986? Yeah, so wow. Ibogaine is a, lo- a long story. But, well, here, now you'll see why it's so long for Ibogaine. So what happened is that um, Howard had uh, this woman, Deborah Mash, do some research, but he didn't have enough money to fully pay for her research, and so she had to find some money. And then she discovered um, a, a long-lasting metabolite of MDMA called noribogaine, which then she wanted to patent for the intellectual property because Howard had patented a use patent of uh, ibogaine probate addiction. So then Howard started suing her. She started suing Howard. Everybody started suing everybody in the whole ibogaine field about all these patents. So I contacted the patent attorney for uh, ibogaine, for Howard, and I said, I want you to help me develop an anti-patent strategy so nobody can patent any of the uses of MDMA. So basically you have to make things public, and then to, to patent something, you have to invent it. So we have all these stories that people have been healed by all different things from MDMA, whether it's causal or not, it doesn't even matter. The stories are up there so nobody can complain or can claim that they invented it. We have one person, a story that they took MDMA and their rheumatoid arthritis went away. So in any case, we have an anti-patent strategy. There's no use patents for MDMA. Then there are um, process patents that you can get for how you produce the medical grade MDMA or how you encapsulate it. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. I don't think those pro- those patents are worth all that much. Um, maybe you've got an optimum way to do it and somebody else's is 10% more expensive. So we're going to let make all that information public as well for our process of making MDMA to a medicine. But what Reagan passed in 84 was a law that creates what's called data exclusivity. And so what that means is that no one can use our data. We have the exclusive use of our data to market as a prescription drug for five years. And if we do studies in pediatric populations, which the FDA is requiring us, we get an extra six months data exclusivity. And that blocks a generic manufacturer from applying to produce a generic competitor until the five and a half years is over. It takes the FDA at least six months to review. So uh, generic. So we'll have at least six years of data exclusivity. And in Europe, it's 10 years of data exclusivity. So the answer to your question about how we intend to make money is that we will be able to do everything out in the open, make all of our data open source. You know, We don't have to have any patents about anything. But if we present data to FDA showing safety and efficacy, and FDA says you have permission to market it, we'll be the only ones to market it. And so that's how we plan to make money. But we don't plan to make a whole bunch of money in the sense that we're not going to profit maximize. So what our real goal is, is mass mental health. It's not about accumulating profits. And since we are funded by donors, so far we're about to embark on a $60 million uh, fundraising campaign. We have 
so far in the history of Mass. So in 34 years, we've raised over $70 million in donations. And in the next uh, year and a half or so, uh, I hope we can raise another $60 million. And that would permit us to globalize MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD through the United States, Israel, Canada, throughout Europe, Australia, Brazil, South America, um, and many other countries as well. So that's um, our long-term plan. And then what we're trying to tell the donors. Is- wait, wait. How does somebody, Rick, how does somebody donate? Like, like if somebody wanted to write you a check right now, how do they do it? Um, they go to the maps.org website. And there's our address there. And you just uh, mail the check. Or you can <laughs> donate online. Um, or, or you can donate uh well, I was about to say you can donate appreciated securities, but a lot of people don't have those anymore. Not but, right now. Um, yeah, but you can donate stocks. You can donate land. We, we even had someone left us a house uh, in Israel. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. It's actually to... a pretty funny story because he, uh, this guy died, and he had a, a wife and a mistress. And so <laughs> after he died, he, the house um, – it was called the remainder interest went to us, but his mistress got to live in the house until she died. And then when she died, the house would go to us. Is she still there? So, well, after about 15 or so years, um, she offered to buy the house from us. And so, and the, the value of it had increased. Um, so we sold it to her. <laughs> um, so she's still there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I- you have the most fascinating funder base, right? Because you would think that, um, that, you know, these, this is like a crazy left wing liberal type of, of, of thing. But, you know, there's guys like, um, um, oh shit, I forgot his name now. Um, well, let's uh, see, George Soros. Well, there's Rebecca Mercer from the Mercer thank family. Thank you. There's Elizabeth Koch, whose father is Charles Koch, from the Koch brothers. Yep. Um, there's the Rockefellers, the Pritzkers. Um, you know, we, we just uh, there's a lot of uh, tech people. There's people that uh, David Bronner from Dr. Bronner. So yeah, George Soros is even the Open Society Foundation has donated money. So we we have a remarkably bipartisan group of donors that. Um, it's yeah, it's amazing, and that that's why I think that in part this gets us back to why did I choose MDMA and PTSD? Um, Rebecca Mercer donated a million dollars, but what she said was it's restricted to veterans, and we have more than enough veterans in our phase three study, so that's no problem. Um, so I think we we really are um, we have a broad base of support, and oh here here's the, here's another hilarious thing, so. Um, in Congress, um, Alexandria Octavio Cortez, AOC, is considered to be the squad, you know, one of the most, um, you know, left wing sort of um, people in Congress. And Matt Gates is one of Trump's uh, main supporters from Florida, also in the House of Representatives. Um, and so there was a bill that was for um opening up the door to psychedelic research. And it was co-sponsored. We got it co-sponsored by 
AOC and Matt Gates. Oh, wow. But about the only thing that uh, these people can be, um, you know, find common ground was on psychedelics. Did you get them to trip together? <laughs> well, uh, okay, Lewis, I'm glad that you mentioned that, actually, because um, one of our projects is um, Israelis and Palestinians who are um, doing ayahuasca together and MDMA. And so we are doing a study that is about psychedelics for um, conflict resolution. Wow. And I think that it's uh, so- And you're doing that with a tie, right? um, Well, uh, Christian Angermeyer, you know, had had offered to um, support it. Yeah. Can you do it for Congress? Um, well, 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 just that, also that's the, that's, that's the funny joke. We like to say that we're going to start with the Israelis and Palestinians, <laughs> and once once we've figured out that, we'll do the hard case of Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> can't we just send? Can't we just send it to Donald Trump? Just you know, I, though I think he would need an ego dissolution. I don't think that that MDMA he should do five meo DMT and just completely experience ego death and then come back. Well, I think here's the the hope that um, I, I, you know, that I think is a bit unrealistic, which is this idea that um, you it's not the drug; it's the drug assisted psychotherapy. You have to want to mm. grow. You yeah. have to want to experience these things. <laughs> And it's about the work that people do to open up to difficult things within them. And if you don't want to do that, you're going to shut it down and you can end up worse off. So I, I think the chances are that, um, that Trump would decide that, um, you know, he didn't want to do the hard work. Yeah. And, and, and he couldn't surrender. He definitely could not surrender. No, no, it would be kind of hard for him. But, but I do think that if he were to do anything, he should start with MDMA. Well, I can give you his mailing address. A lot of self-love and self-acceptance that, that MDMA produces that would probably be good for him. <laughs> oh. This conversation took a turn. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's it can't all be serious. I mean, look, like the world is going to shit. Um, and, and this is really important stuff, but if I can't find a way to laugh every now and then, I'm going to go nuts. Well, wait, I, I have a question about, um, you know, we're talking about uh, about trials, uh, clinical trials. How does one find a therapist or, uh, well, I guess, are clinical trials the only access to this kind of therapy? Or um, I, I, how does one find a therapist that does this? Or, or is it only for scientific trial at the moment? Well... Um, there's a whole network of underground psychedelic psychotherapists all throughout the the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's hard to find them. Um, so I would say if you want to find a trial, what you do is you go to, so if anybody is listening, you go to clinicaltrials.gov. So it's a website, clinicaltrials.gov. And that lists all the clinical trials that are going on. And now pharmaceutical companies are being forced to list their studies because it used to be in order to um, get a drug into a medicine, you have to have two successful phase three studies. But a lot of times pharmaceutical companies would do five or six or seven studies 
and the ones that failed to get statistical significance, nobody would ever hear about it. And then you'd hear about, oh, there's two studies in the literature that work. And then you think, oh, that's, you know, every study that they did worked. So now you have to list clinical trials.gov so you can know that the pharmaceutical company did seven studies and only two of them worked. But you can go there right now and clinicaltrials.gov and you can put in the drug or you can put in your condition. And that, and you can, if you put an MDMA uh, for PTSD, you'll end up, um, you know, seeing uh, our studies in there. So I think that um, there's that. As far as this, uh, you know, underground stuff, that that's just word of mouth, and that. But um, you know, and, and I sort of believe that those people that are doing that work are um, doing a, a lot of um, good in general. And um, yeah, but there are, you know, I I tend to agree, but there are also. Um, um, you know, people who shamans who who are not necessarily you know, who are just basically providing the experience without the the therapy, um, you know, and there's a a good potential for harm. Um, you guys have the Zendo project. Can you can you talk about that and 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 what you guys are doing from a harm reduction perspective? Yeah, 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 Louis. Thank you for asking that. So. You know, as I indicated too, that that one of the things that we're trying to do is to really talk about mass mental health. So that's really the key, and that requires not just making psychedelics into medicines, but making it available to people in this licensed legalization context. And so, one of the things that we've been very sensitive to is the backlash idea. Why there might be a backlash, and you know, in the 60s, there was a backlash against psychedelics because they were connected with the counterculture and Vietnam War protesters, and they were Nixon's big enemy, or that was the hippies. Um, then I saw the backlash against MDMA in the 80s, and that was Ronald Reagan, just the escalation of uh, the drug war. So now it seems like if there is going to be a backlash, it's going to be, um, I think, parents worrying about their kids. And they, that would be at festivals, things like that, where people take these drugs recreationally. They're not really prepared for what's happening. Difficult emotions come up. They try to stuff their feelings down. They end up worse off. So the Zendo Project was designed, you know, and we started it actually in um, 2001. <laughs> uh, we didn't call it the Zendo Project at the time. But um, we started in 2001 to do the psychedelic harm reduction at festivals and at events. And so what we do is we bring therapists who are trained in the work with psychedelics to these events. And when people have a difficult psychedelic experience, often they would get in contact with the police. They would get arrested or tranquilized or, you know, and that wouldn't be good or they'd get hospitalized or whatever. So now people that are having difficult trips can be referred to our team of volunteer uh, peer supporters uh, it's not the same as psychotherapy because, you know, we don't know them ahead of time. There's no integration. There's no preparation. There's just this sort of acute process of helping them through their their struggles. And, for example, at Burning Man last year, we had 550 people that we helped. Wow. And wow. We, we had, yeah, we, we had um, over about 230 um, volunteers that we helped as well. That, that came to us to, to help others. I mean, and so we had about six or 700 that applied now. So 
and it's it's at festivals all over the world. And I think in a post-prohibition world, we really need to do a lot of work on harm reduction. So actually, earlier today, I had a conversation with a woman from the World Health Organization, and they're taking an interest in psychedelics and wanting to learn more about it. But they're also very interested in harm reduction, which is kind of a, a popular concept in medicine in all different areas. So we are actually having this conversation about the, the Zendo project and psychedelic harm reduction as well. Um, but I think that we will eventually move to a situation where we have honest drug education, where we have what's called drug checking, where people know that the drugs they're getting are pure and they're not, they're not taking one thing, but having it turn out to be something else, you know, and there's also a situation where um, we will be having um festival organizers and, and promoters and even bars and stuff will have um, psychedelic harm reduction that will offer to people if they have a difficult trip, then you can go and process it with people. So the Zendo project, I think, is a real key part of what we're doing in the culture. And it's also a great place to help train therapists because you get a whole stream of people doing different psychedelics um, you know, and they're mixing them all. You get the hardest cases <laughs> and mm -hmm. you get to practice with people all around you. So the Zendo project is one of the things I'm the most proud of that we're doing. That's great. Um, uh, I'd like to pivot to cannabis um, since this is a cannabis podcast. Um, and, you know, how, how this rollout, it, you know, is happening. It, it followed a, a medical state-by-state -state process, um, you know, towards legalization. And it's really resulted in this awful web of rules and regulations that are so dynamic that people are having a hard time keeping up and psychedelics seem to be following a similar pathway um you know with regards to cities um you know i like i think san francisco or oakland and then the state of oregon um voting on a regulated psychedelic medical system is this what's in the best interest of the movement um yes i think so actually um i mean i think that really what we need is two tracks one is, you know, the medical track where hopefully we'll succeed and then treatments will be covered by insurance. The other is this track for people who want to self-medicate, you could say. It's for people that don't have a clinical diagnosis. These drugs should never have been criminalized in the first place. It's counterproductive and um, not a good idea either. So I think any move towards um, decriminalization or lowest enforcement priority um, is a step in the right direction. Um, but I do think and, and worry that we have, um, you know, as we start increasing access through these initiatives, that um, people have not been given enough honest drug education. You know, there's still bunches of people that see it more as party drugs, and there's not a lot of support. And the hospitals don't know if you come in from a um, – you know, difficult psychedelic experience, better to talk you down than tranquilize you. So we don't have the full kind of harm reduction program in place in society, but I do think that um, these efforts are helpful. And so there's a lot of concern among some researchers that if there, these uh, initiatives um, like decriminalized nature in Oakland or uh, making mushrooms low enforcement priority in Denver, um, that's, they will make the FDA um, see that some of the research is being used as part of the promotional um, 
information to try to get people to vote for these initiatives. The, the, the worry was that then the research would be shut down. But actually, I don't think that's happening. What I think is happening is that the FDA is um, seeing these um, other initiatives. And what they're concerned about is that they might take away energy from people wanting to go through the FDA process. And that's what's happened with marijuana. So this is where they are making, I think, the the FDA, I think, is making a, a major mistake. What, what I was told is some of the senior people at FDA look at Oregon Initiative and things like that, and they're worried that the more access there is outside of the FDA, that they'll be um, less interested in doing the research. And they compare that to marijuana. But where the FDA is making a mistake is the reason that there's not enough research with marijuana is because of the monopoly on supply that the Nationalist on Drug Abuse has on the supply of cannabis. So there's only one DEA licensed facility at the University of Mississippi. They grow under contract to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And that's the only place you can get cannabis that the FDA will accept for drug development purposes. And it's shitty it's weed. Only, it's terrible weed. It's terrible weed. Yeah. And it can never be sold as a commercial product. It's only for research, for academic research. And what that means is it cannot be used in phase three because in phase three, which is where we're in with MDMA, you have to use the exact same drug you want to market. And since we know that different strains of cannabis are different, you can't just study oh, that's one interesting. strain of cannabis and then market another strain. It could be completely different in its effects. So the, the problem we have with cannabis in terms of making it through the FDA is this government monopoly. So several days ago, the DEA put an announcement in the Federal Register that they're opening up a 60-day comment period about uh, their plans to increase the licenses for people that want to get federal licenses to grow marijuana for drug development purposes. You know, right now we have Epidiolex, which is CBD for childhood epilepsy, but that was from GW Pharmaceuticals, grown in England, and that's yep. imported here. They also have Sativex, another project pro product, which is THC CBD in equal proportions. And um, Marinol, right? Uh, yeah. Now, Marinol is an oral THC pill that um, is synthetic, and that's a medicine for nausea control for cancer chemotherapy, even though smoked marijuana works a lot better, is a lot cheaper for nausea control for chemotherapy. So where I, I see these initiatives as um, being very helpful, actually. So a friend of mine was um, a senior legislative director for one of the longest serving members in Congress who was part of the uh, Black Congressional Caucus. And so what he talked about was um, the um, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King approach. So they had two different approaches, but, but what he was saying is that Malcolm X, who was more a radical, you know, um, African-American black radical, um, he made Martin Luther King look more moderate. So by having, so by having these uh, initiatives, they're trying to um, decriminalize plant psychedelics or, or other uh, or mushrooms or plant psychedelics, they make the research look more moderate. So that's why I think that the um, initiatives that are happening are in the best interest of the movement. But what's very important is that people are going to be looking to Denver, to Oakland, to potentially Oregon, 
as models of relaxing the rules on psychedelics. And so we have to be very sure that we put a lot of uh, energy and resources into doing harm reduction in those areas because there will be people that use drugs, psychedelics in those areas are not prepared, have bad experiences, and that, that could be really bad in terms of public perceptions. So we're actually, the, Sarah Gale, who is the woman in charge of the director of our Zendo project, lives in Boulder. She's now on the mayor's committee in Denver to monitor how um, the lowest enforcement priority for mushrooms in Denver is actually implemented and to try to get more uh, harm reduction methods. So we are trying that. Our staff is also in Oakland. Um, trying to, to help the Oakland uh, City Council manage this process whereby they have um, reduced certain kind of criminal penalties. But we want to make sure that um, there's not a lot of uh, tragedies and hopefully beneficial experiences. So that, that there's a risk there, but in general, I'm in favor of it. What can you tell us about the FDA-regulated um, cannabis PTSD study um, in vets that you guys have conducted with? Um, uh, it was a $2 million grant from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Yeah, yeah. And that was with a Dr. Sue Sisley. So a lot of the mm-hmm. people in the marijuana world know Sue. So yep. Sue's phenomenal. I, I just was talking to her this morning. So um, that particular project, you know, because of the the monopoly on marijuana um, by the Nationalist on Drugs, you know, we were not able to really think about this as a drug development study in a sense, because we had to use night of marijuana. But uh, I felt that I wanted to get marijuana research started through the FDA. So this is the real first study of the smoked marijuana in decades for a clinical condition and in the U.S. by the FDA. And what we found, well, first off, it took us seven years to get permission for the study. Unbelievable. Seven years. And it was in veterans with PTSD. There's a lot of veterans who talk about Canada's being helpful for PTSD. Um, it took us three years to do the study. We got $2.1 million from the state of Colorado. And we have now... Um, submitted a paper about the results to a scientific journal. So I I hate to um, uh, leave you in a lurch in a sense, but until the paper is... We'll just have to have you back. Yeah, but but what I can say is that we were able to complete the study. There was 76 veterans. There was four different groups. Uh, One had um, THC, the other had CBD, the other had THC-CBD combination, and one had a placebo. And they got uh, 1.8 grams per day in a little plastic container uh, for 30 days. A pill? No, uh, a, for three oral? weeks, actually. Sorry. Uh, uh, smoked. Smoked, okay. So, so they would get it in the package. They, we gave them pipes so they could smoke it. And we wanted to see if there was a different effect between THC, CBD, the THC-CBD combination, or, or the placebo. Um, and... I guess what I can share is that nobody committed suicide. Nobody went to the hospital. We were, it seems like we were able to do it in a safe way. Um, and I'll just have to leave the your result for our next conversation once the paper has been accepted. The, the only we'll reason I'm it. saying this is, is, yeah, it's just that the journals um, don't like you to talk about the results before they publish the paper. So 
we're we're pretty close to getting it accepted and published. Um, but but what I will add is that it the results have made us want to continue the research, and that's where we get to the state of Michigan. Um, so the Marijuana Policy Project approved marijuana legalization in Michigan through an initiative campaign, and they put in there that once they get the marijuana taxes. Um, they have to put out $20 million a year for two years to study veterans and reducing veteran suicides through cannabis. And the money can only go to nonprofit organizations or academic researchers. And we think by the end of this year, the state of Michigan will have enough money in taxes that they'll be able to put out this uh, request for proposals. And so we're going to try to do a larger uh, definitive study with 500 or so subjects We'll probably do smoked and vaporized, and we'll probably still do the different varieties, but we'll hopefully use better marijuana, higher potency marijuana than we got from NIDA. And uh, we, we hope that this would be the definitive study on uh, marijuana used by um, veterans with PTSD. Uh, I guess been... the other thing I can share is, is that um, even still, marijuana is palliative meaning that it reduces the symptoms. But when people use marijuana for PTSD, if they stop using the marijuana, a lot of times the symptoms come back. So it's not curative, it's palliative. And with MDMA, it's about getting to the heart of the problem, working through it, and then not needing MDMA anymore. But still, some people, we, we, we want patients to have options. Mm-hmm. And if they, if they want to choose uh, marijuana for PTSD or they want to choose uh, MDMA for PTSD or LSD or psilocybin or ayahuasca or whatever, Ibogaine, all of that should be available. So, And, and we, we're wanting to become more experts in PTSD, and that's why we want to um, um, you know, do the marijuana PTSD. But, but the long-term goal there is, um, again, public benefit. So we want to make the flower into a medicine that will be generic and cheap. And we'll leave it to other people like GW Pharmaceuticals to use non-smoking delivery systems or extracts that they can patent and make those into medicines. But we'll we'll stick with smoked or vaporized flower. Rick, uh, you have been unbelievably generous with your time. I have one last question for you. Um, and we've talked about the, the stresses involved around dealing with the coronavirus. What are you doing for self-care right now? How are you maintaining your mental health? Well, here, here's the funny thing is that these days, you know, there's so much going on. MAPS has over 70 people working for it. So I'm, I'm constantly on the move. And I travel now more than half the time. So because of the coronavirus, I'm not traveling. But when I before before the coronavirus, when I was not traveling, when I'm home, I'm just sitting here catching up with the email, talking on the phone. Often days go by. I don't even leave the house. So it feels like normal to me. What I'm doing is um, smoking marijuana uh, at night. That's that's a real um, kind of relaxing thing for me. But I use it for work a lot. So I do use it for editing things that I've written during the day. Uh, I'm hanging out with my wife and two daughters. We have a hot tub. Um, you know, we're we're just um, hanging out at the house, um, having family time. We have a fireplace. You know, yesterday it snowed a little bit here in Boston, and so um, it, it's kind of homey. I mean, I feel my 
my self care um, is actually going great, and it's it's a pleasure to be home for such a long stretch of time in a row. Um, so you know the world is so many people are suffering. It's um, you know that that brings a lot of sadness into our home, and but at the same time, you know I just feel like. Um, I'm having a great time <laughs> with my family. You know, That's these great. are daughters that have gone gone off to the world, and now, you know, they're home. Uh, one from college, one from work, and so you know, they're all working out of here. My wife works out of the house now because her work has gone virtual. And um, yeah, yeah. So my self care is um, work and marijuana and family. Rick, thank you so much. And we definitely, anytime you want to come back, you're welcome. And um, we'll definitely want to have you back uh, in a couple months to give us an update on where we stand with FDA, with what's going on in Michigan, uh, fundraising, you name it. We want to keep up with you because what you're doing is really important work, you know, to help we help us get to that point of mass mental health. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, I, I really believe that the public education work is absolutely crucial. So I'm really glad to uh, participate in, in your efforts to do uh, really good public education. Thanks, man. Thank you, Much Rick. appreciate it. Yeah. Great. Special thanks to Rick Doblin from MAPS. If you want to contact him, you can find him uh, at his website, mapsmaps.org. And if you can donate to the organization, we at the Green Rush would be deeply appreciative. Um, Plus, also check out clinicaltrials.gov if you're interested in actually participating in a study. Um, That'd be great, too. Um, Feel free to drop us a line at greenrush at KCSA. Follow us on all the social media channels that we have. Um, And, you know, let's just... Just all try to take a deep breath and and get through this. Um, thanks again for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Have a great day. One take, Shay. One take. <laughs>